Welcome to Business Brief, Missouri Business Alert's podcast focused on the news and issues shaping the state. In this episode, we will look at regulations from the Biden administration, targeting consolidation in the meatpacking industry, and what effect the policies might have on Missouri. Then, we will look at the failure to establish a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce in Columbia, and how the issues it would have attempted to address continue to impact businesses today. My name is DC Benincasa, and I'm joined again by my co-host Ian Laird. How are you doing this week? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? I've been good, watching a lot of college basketball with March Madness going on last weekend and now this upcoming weekend. I have as well. How's that gone for you with your brackets and any teams you root for? Well, I'm an Ohio State fan, so I was disappointed to see them get bounced by Villanova. But it was good to see him put up a good fight, and I've got all my Final Four teams still left. Fingers crossed. Nice. I think my bracket is doing better than most years so far, too. Enough basketball, though. Do you want to get into things? Sure. You want to start us off with our first headline? Missouri's largest company by revenue, Centene, has a new chief executive officer, a month after the former CEO took a medical leave of absence. Sarah London previously served as vice board chair for the Clayton-based health insurance company and will replace Michael Niedorf, who led Centene for 26 years. London joined the company in 2020 and has spent time overseeing technology and digital strategy during her tenure. Legalized sports betting is inching closer to becoming a reality in Missouri. After years of gambling legislation stalling, two bills that would legalize online and retail betting passed the Missouri House of Representatives Thursday. Legislators attached an amendment to the bills to decrease the adjusted gross revenue tax rate from 10% to 8%. Similar bills pending in the Senate would tax revenue at a higher 21% rate and give lottery retailers gambling licenses, so the House and Senate will likely need a conference committee to hash out differences between the two legislative bodies. The Missouri House of Representatives has introduced two bills that would aim to increase transparency for emergency contracts from the state. During the pandemic, state agencies were given the ability to make purchases of over $50,000. This allowed them to enter and extend contracts under emergency procurement that cost the state tens of millions of dollars. The legislation would limit the term of no-bid and emergency procurement contracts to one year and force the state to set up a competitive bid plan for such contracts in that time period. It would also lead to more oversight of contracts in excess of $1 million. And Huddick Building Products says Idaho-based Woodgrain has agreed to acquire the St. Louis Building Company for $350 million, including the assumption of existing debt. This isn't the first attempt to acquire Huddick. The company turned down a $107 million acquisition offer in 2020 from Connecticut-based Mill Road Capital. Woodgrain, which makes wood doors and windows in the U.S. and Chile, would significantly increase its distribution and product offerings if the deal is approved by Huddig shareholders. For our first story, Ian, you took a look at legislation and regulation of the meatpacking industry. That's right. The Biden administration implemented policies last July and earlier this year in January that are aimed at reducing the consolidation of the meatpacking industry And there has also been legislation introduced by Senator Deb Fisher of Nebraska, which would attempt to put minimum quantity floors on the number of cash trades of cattle. Before we get too into the weeds on this, let's back up a minute. Where exactly does Missouri rank in terms of livestock production? Yeah, obviously an important connection to make. So in Missouri at the start of 2022, there were over 4 million cattle, including calves. 
nearly 3.5 million hogs, 16.5 million turkeys, and 291 million chickens, according to figures from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Missouri Department of Agriculture. Nationally, that puts the state as the third largest cattle producer and the sixth largest turkey and hog producer. That's a lot of production. What does this translate to in terms of dollar figures? In total, across all livestock industries, Missouri is looking at about $9.5 billion in value added, and meat processing alone is worth $5.9 billion of that figure. Again, not really much of a surprise, but we are talking about a massive industry within the state. Okay, back to the regulations. What does it attempt to do? The executive order that came from the Biden administration in July was intended to combat potential monopolization across more sectors than just agriculture. It did, however, task the U.S. Department of Agriculture with developing a plan to promote competitiveness in the industry. That plan also attempted to make it easier for farmers to lodge complaints about companies that they thought might be engaging in monopolistic practices. And what happened in January? Fast forward to earlier this year, and the Department of Agriculture announced the specifics of their plan. They would provide $375 million in grants to projects that can help achieve the goals of a more competitive industry. They will also allocate up to $275 million as capital to be used by independent processors looking to find a larger foothold in the market. More funding is being distributed to help promote job growth in rural areas, improve technical assistance for smaller plants, and to reduce fees associated with overtime and inspections. In total, it was a pledge of $1 billion to increase competition. Okay, I'm starting to get a better sense of the situation here, but one of the key things you mentioned is the consolidation of the industry. To what extent are we actually seeing this? The key indicator for consolidation that the government usually looks at is called the four-firm ratio, where the output of the top four producers is measured against the entire industry. For cattle processors, 85% of production is held by the top four companies. This is a drastic shift from 1977, when four-firm production accounted for 25% of the market, and still a significant increase from 1992, when the figure stood at 71%. Wow, that is a pretty big increase. What caused it? There are two main factors that led to this increase, both of which became bigger issues during the 1980s and 1990s, when there was that period of rapid consolidation. The first is the implementation of economies of scale, which is the idea that producing large quantities can make production more cost-effective on a per-unit basis. Large processing plants meant lower costs, but it also meant a lower number of plants being needed. The second factor was wage stagnation and even decreases for employees that allowed companies to further cut costs. If this was all happening a few decades ago, why are we just now seeing action being taken? I was able to talk to Scott Brown, a livestock economist at the University of Missouri, and he mentioned there has been a pretty drastic widening of margins within the industry for meatpackers. Is anyone else benefiting from this, Ian? Not really. What we have seen instead is farmers and consumers getting squeezed by the market. When you look at farmers raising cattle, the price they are receiving from buyers has gone down. Brown attributed this to herd sizes growing during the past few years for a couple of reasons. First, in 2019, one of the largest cattle processing plants in the country caught fire and had to be shut down for several months. With less processing power, herd sizes grew. Then, during the pandemic, a lot of larger plants were forced to shut down due to health concerns and COVID outbreaks, once again limiting the ability to process meat. With a large supply of cattle, prices were naturally driven down. What about on the consumer's end? 
Spencer Tuma of Missouri Farm Bureau said consumers faced record prices for meat during the pandemic. This again was largely due to the lower processing numbers throughout this time, with so many plants having to close down. So while the cattle market was flooded with supply, the beef market was experiencing a shortage. And the middleman was the one reaping the profits. Exactly. By being able to charge lower prices for cattle and higher prices for beef, we saw profits for processing plants shoot up, which caught the attention of a lot of officials and politicians. Just how effective could these new regulations be? I think discussion of the potential effects can be broken down into parts. So the simplest part is making it easier to file complaints about potential antitrust activity. The Department of Agriculture has already set that up. Next, the funding and support of small and mid-sized processing plants could reduce some of the strain they have felt recently, but it might not be necessary. Brown and Tuma both said that they are already doing better since the pandemic, because during COVID, people became much more interested in understanding the sourcing and story behind their food. Smaller, more local plants allow for that level of transparency, which doesn't really exist for larger plants, turning some consumers away from those larger companies. What's the next part of the equation? The next part has to deal with the legislation introduced by Senator Fisher. Brown says the mandating of cash trades would lead to more of what is called price discovery. There are typically two ways livestock are purchased, by contract agreements or direct trades. More direct cash trades would get pricing out in the open and allow for better determination of whether prices are at the appropriate point and if supply and demand are at the right levels. We've covered a lot of ground on this story, Ian. Is there anything else we're missing? Yeah, the last thing that both Brown and Tuma brought up is that the market is already starting to self-correct. As with any market, there are ebbs and flows, and we are already starting to see prices start to level out. Just because we have that evening out, though, doesn't mean legislation is no longer necessary. Brown again emphasized the importance of price discovery and how if it takes legislation to get that, he doesn't necessarily see it as a bad thing, even if prices don't change too much after its implementation. For Tuma, she said it is a question of how much consolidation in the market we want to see, particularly as input costs for farmers rise, squeezing them from that end as well. In early 2016, members of Colombia's Hispanic community began talks of forming a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, a space for Spanish speakers and Latinos to network and learn more about the business world. But the chamber was never created, and the problems it was meant to address still linger. Missouri Business Alert published a story detailing the cause behind the chamber's demise, while reporter Nevin Dubinsky learned more about the gap and resources. Colombia is only 3.6% Hispanic according to the 2020 census, but Hispanic business owners operate in a multitude of different industries, from construction to event planning. Many of these owners face serious hurdles in getting their business off the ground. I had a lot of problems figuring out where to get licensed or where to find a loan. I faced a barrier because when I did try to get a loan, they said no. There were a lot of obstacles. Those were the words of Jessica Herrera, owner of the Mexican ice cream shop El Fagón Veracruzano. For business owners like her, the difficulties of navigating taxes, banking, and regulations are all compounded by a lack of bilingual resources and fellow Hispanic business people. Luis Ramirez, owner of La Terraza Mexican Restaurant, believes some of these issues can be attributed to Colombia's smaller Hispanic community. Since we are in a place where the Latin community is not that big, sometimes we lack access to important and necessary information needed to take the steps you're going to take. 
it's very difficult for us as a community because we often don't have access to this knowledge. Jonathan Verdejo, owner of Blue Diamond Events, a current board member at the Columbia Chamber of Commerce and one of the original proponents for Hispanic Chamber, says starting a business as a Latino or Hispanic is just not the same as it is for everyone else. I remember when we first started meeting up with the Chamber and that, that conversation that we had as to how most Hispanic people start, a businesses, uh, start businesses compared to American people and just the surprise in both of our faces that were like, what? Like, you know, they're like, oh yeah, well you gotta put together a business plan, you go through, you know, you get a loan and I was like, yeah, but most, most of the Hispanic people, like they just have the mentality that they don't wanna get into debt, especially if they fail, like they don't, it's not something that is even an option. I'm sitting there, again, I, I'm, I, I'm Americanized, I was raised here and I know a lot of stuff, I'm, I'm pretty educated. My business has been the Hispanic way. I saved my money and all my equipment is paid for. Like, it hasn't been until recently that I got into contact with the chamber and started learning about all these things that I've kind of been leaning more towards the way that it should be done. Verdejo's experience is corroborated by the data. According to Stanford's 2020 State of Latino Entrepreneurship Report, the Latino community has a high reliance on high-risk personal funding sources like family savings or business credit cards. I, I've been mentioning throughout this uh, interview about the lack of time and resources for myself, you know, and now somebody that doesn't dominate the, the language, you know, it's, it's tricky. Organizations like Columbia Public Schools offer English language classes, but Verdejo says learning English is easier said than done for a full-time business owner or an aspiring entrepreneur. Because I've heard people say, well, there's places that they can go and learn English. Like, it's, why don't they go? And it's, well, it's not that easy. Like, I mean, they, they barely have enough time to run their lives and how, you know, um, you know, especially as a business owner, like I, a small business owner, I, we're focused on business all the time. It's not like a job where we, you know, 5 p.m. comes along and we're like, all right, let's not even talk or think about the business at all. Like that's on the contrary. You're thinking about the business the whole time. Ramirez believes the issue is ultimately a human one, as better access to the business world would mean better upward mobility. People pay a high price to come to this country. Don't tell me otherwise. If we are paying the price, the least society can do is give us the ability to live a good life. Verdejo and Ramirez are hoping to be able to provide resources in the future through community-driven efforts. They're even considering a revival of the Hispanic Chamber. But until that time, resources remain scarce. It's now time for Words of the Week, Ian. What do you have for us this time? I've chosen phone calls. What made you choose that? A recent bill introduced by Missouri Representative Michael Davis is attempting to cap the price inmates will be charged to make phone calls. I didn't realize this was an issue. What do phone calls normally cost? A report from the Prison Policy Initiative found that on average, a 15-minute phone call costs $5.74. In some locations throughout Missouri, it can cost even more. The only calls that are free are those with a public defender. That means many inmates are often racking up debt as prisons and their vendors try to increase profits. Those costs are then often passed on to the inmates' family and friends who are desperate to maintain some level of connection with their loved ones. What exactly does the bill do, and what is the likelihood that this bill is passed? So the bill is based on similar regulations from a federal law from 2021, 
The law caps costs at $0.12 cents per minute and $0.14 cents per minute for some larger prisons, but is limited to calls between states. The proposed bill would apply those caps to calls within the state of Missouri. Currently, the bill has made it out of committee with a unanimous vote, but Davis worries the Senate could stall the bill. Wow, that's actually a pretty good transition point for my word. Oh, really? What is that? I chose gridlock. Does this have to do with the Missouri legislature? It does. Prior to their return from a week-long break earlier, the legislature had only passed one bill in 10 weeks of action. And now it's less than eight weeks to pass any remaining pieces of legislation, including the state budget. What has been causing the inactivity? The conservative caucus in the Senate has been attempting to add amendments to many bills, including those that have bipartisan support. As a result, bills that would have been in line to be sent to the House or Governor Mike Parson's desk have instead been delayed. It got to a point where before the break, a bipartisan coalition denounced the actions of the caucus. Is there any reason to expect things to pick up now following the break and the denouncement? It's unclear. On one hand, increasing frustration among members of the House, along with criticism from Republican senators who are not in the conservative caucus, might force some action, especially with so many popular and important items up in the air. On the other hand, Senator Bob Onder, who is a member of the caucus, says they will continue to try to pass legislation through amendments. I guess we'll just have to wait and see if the impasse can be broken. Yep, and with that, we'll head into our final segment. For this week's closing thought, we will go back to Jonathan Ferdejo, the business owner and Hispanic Chamber of Commerce advocate we heard from earlier. Here's Verdejo. There's there's few places where, where people have access to this culture. And so at the same time that I'm connecting people that are Hispanic, I also want to help introduce to people that maybe didn't have access or any type of connection to the Hispanic culture before. Kind of let them in on it. You know, you asked what makes what makes it. It's everything. It's how we dance. It's how we talk. You know, the music we listen to and you know, sometimes there's been times where I play American music, you know, Cardi B or whatever, and people will come up and tell me, what, why are you, this is Latinite, why are you playing? Dude, just because we're Latin doesn't mean we don't listen to Cardi B. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> this is what we are. This is what we do, you know. Well, that is all for this week. Thank you to the M33 Project for providing the music for this episode. For my co-host, Ian Laird, assistant producers Kaylee Anagita and Christian McDonald, and editors Kelly DeRook, Jack Knowlton, James Marshall, and Wicker Perlis, I'm DC Benincasa. This has been Business Brief. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.